2: This is Todd Tresseter from financialmentor.com, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. Hi, this is Karsten from the Early Retirement Now blog, and you are listening to the What's Up Next podcast.
3: This is Steve from thinksaveretire.com, and you are listening to the What's Up Next podcast.
0: This is Carl Jensen, and you are listening to the What's Up Next podcast.
3: Welcome to What's Up Next,
4: where your hosts Paul David Thompson and Doc G take the discussion on topics in the financial independence movement to the next level. Guest panelists share their opinion to questions that don't have clear answers to help you refine your path to financial independence.
5: Welcome, this is Paul David Thompson from Ready Investor One. And this is Doc G from Diversify.com. So Paul Thompson, what's up next? Well, Doc, we're going to ask the question today, does the financial independence community understand risk? We have four guests on the line that are going to chime in on their opinions on how we should be thinking about risk. So I'll have each of you go around and do a quick
2: introduction. We'll start off with Karsten. Hi, I'm Karsten. I'm also known as Big Earn, and I blog at EarlyRetirementNow.com. I used to work in finance, but I retired in 2018, and I blog mostly—not uh, exclusively—but mostly about managing the risk of running out of money in retirement. So you
5: have a few thoughts about this. Looking forward to hearing more, Steve. Please give us a quick introduction.
3: Sure. My name is Steve. I blog at ThinkSafeRetire.com. I am 37. My wife is 33. We both retired from full-time work, though we do have many passion projects that we do on the side. We sold both houses, live in a 200-square-foot Airstream with our two rescue
5: dogs, and we travel the country for a living. Great. Fantastic. Carl, how about you?
0: Hi, my name is Carl. I sometimes go by Mr. 1500 on my blog, 1500days.com.
1: Todd, how about you? Quick intro, please. Todd Tresseter, site is financialmentor.com, author of six books, former hedge fund manager, quote unquote, if you could see me, I'm doing air quotes, uh, retired at age 35, which if you could see me was long, long ago, uh, judging by the gray hair and wrinkles. So Karsten, I want to start out with you.
4: I sometimes wonder if there's going to be a moment of reckoning in the FIRE community. Is there such thing you think of as a FIRE bubble? And are we living that right now?
2: I mean, we almost had one, right? In December, we saw S&P 500 drop almost 20% from peak to bottom. And uh, so lots of people got nervous about that. And you would think that if something relatively modest like that, a 20% drop peak to bottom is not unheard of, we see that every few years on average. So if something like that already gets people nervous, then uh, yeah, probably uh, in the next recession, the next bear market, it's going to look a lot worse. So people could have potentially gotten used to this 10-year-long bear, a bull market. So what happens if that changes, right? What happens if we have, say, a repeat? I don't think we're going to have a repeat of, say, 1929, right, where the stock market drops by 80-something percent. Uh, what would be the feeling in the fire community if, say, we have flat returns for the next five years, six, seven, eight years, uh, and then we have a recession after that. So something like a repeat of, uh, say, 1965 to the mid-70s, and then a recession in the mid-70s, another recession in the 80s. Uh, It doesn't even have to be something really drastic where everybody realizes it right away that this is going to be trouble. It could be something really slow, right? Like cooking a frog, right? You don't throw the frog in the hot water. You just uh, throw it in the cold water and then you slowly heat up the water are multiple different scenarios that you could come up with. uh, And this would basically impact the part of the FIRE community that's uh, uh, relying on their, uh, say, 100% stock portfolio or 75% stock portfolio, 25% bond portfolio. I mean, we, we could see that people realize that things will change over the next few years. Steve, Karsten brings
4: up a big point. This financial independence community has really grown by leaps and bounds during this bull market. Do you think the newcomers to financial independence who are making their way towards early retirement, are they emotionally ready for a
3: real downturn? emotionally ready? That's a good question. I like to think they are, but I think a lot of people underestimate the flexibility that they have when things do turn south. It's really easy to be retired early when things are great. We're all making money hand over fist as we have been for the longest time for the exception of November and December. But when things don't turn out quite as you expected or when things do turn south, there are a number of things that we can do as people in general to start to either increase our income through side hustles and passion projects and things like that, or decreasing our expenses through just changing the way you look at money. And let me take a very step by step approach through your expenses, one item by one item, and really eliminate everything that you don't absolutely need. So I think the best way to answer that question is emotionally, I'd like to think that they are, but I am a member of relatively recent early retirees in a good market. So I really can't speak from personal experience with a really heavy downturn here. But I think that sooner or later, we're really going to come to that conclusion that, well, we're either ready or we're not. But nothing is ever for certain. This isn't to one-way street, that if things do turn south, there's usually always something that we can do to make sure that we're not living on the street. So Todd, this makes me think a lot about
4: you. You've been in this financial independence space for a lot longer than most of us. And we talk about whether people are emotionally ready for a downturn, but the bigger question also becomes, are they fiscally ready for a downturn? Can you save And frugal yourself through a downturn? Can you side hustle yourself through a downturn? Are these possibilities we should be leaning on?
0: Yeah,
1: of course. I mean, there's all kinds of flexibility that people can pursue. I would agree with Steve. There's a lot of different angles you can pursue, but I don't think that's the really key question here. You know, I think Karsten was hitting it earlier. You know, on the back of a 10 year bull market, there's always a bubble. It's the definition of what we've been through. And when you get to peak valuations, valuations are correlated with expected returns over a seven to 15 year time horizon. That's also coincided with peak low interest rates. I guess that's an oxymoron. I got that backwards, but anyway, uh, record low interest rates, peak bond prices. And so you've got very low expected returns going forward. And unless people have a fair good depth of experience of understanding how this stuff works, I would say most people are really not prepared. I remember when, you know, I did that Choose FI interview, which you guys will probably mention, and then I wrote the January 27th post as a follow-up to that on my site, January 27th, 2018, bubbles everywhere. One of the things that I noticed in the Choose FI forum, which I thought was really interesting, was they had done a poll, a self-poll, of what percentage of people had what asset allocation. And it was like 90 plus percent of the people had 90 plus percent in stocks and index funds. And I just looked at that and went, wow, this is like no concept of risk management at all given valuations. And, you know, there were several other indicators. So, yeah, there is a real risk. I think the Choose FI community has been taught a certain very narrow understanding of investing and savings and understanding stuff. And that was what I wanted to mention or wanted to explain when I went on the interview that day was I was trying to broaden the scope and deepen the understanding a bit. And so, yeah, I think that there is some level of risk that's not properly understood.
4: Carl, your opinion on this. I think a lot of us in this community sometimes wish there was an easy button. And so it sounds and feels really good to say, aha, I can read a little bit. I can study up. I can follow some blogs and podcasts and I can get this enough to make it okay. But then I hear people like Todd and Karsten talk, and I realize that there's a lot of detail that I probably don't have as good of a grasp on as I should. So it's a big question. Do you think we in the financial independence community have the depth of knowledge necessary?
0: I think we do, but there's a quote I like to think about with questions like this, and this one comes from Warren Buffett. I heard him say this once at one of the Berkshire Hathaway meetings, and his quote was, we'll see who's wearing pants when the tide goes out. So the way I think about this is Mr. Money Mustache, who's probably the biggest financial independence blogger, just started blogging in 2011, and uh, since then we've had this huge, huge bull run. We've had a couple of minor pullbacks, but then we've bounced back right away. So we really haven't seen a big financial downturn happen that's really going to test people. So I think the financial independence community is going to, they're going to handle a little bit better than the general population, but there's still going to be people who freak out about it.
1: One thing I like to point out is that investment styles change with time. And what's popular is often just fashion. And so, for example, uh, right now, the kind of general consensus is low-cost passive index asset allocation. And there's a truth behind that. And that's how it became consensus, which is low-cost matters. It matters a lot because there's a compounded effect to costs. And so, that's proven. It's well-documented. There's no argument here. But the passive part is arguable. And that's part of uh, where I've stood apart a little bit is advocating not necessarily passive. And so... I like to point people to a book back in 1935 that was the bestseller, just as like right now you've got J.L. Collins' book is a bestseller, which is advocating passive approach and so many other books out there that are advocating passive approach, bogleheads, et cetera. If you look at Your Battle for Investment Survival by Gerald Loeb, That was a top business bestseller back in 1935. Now, you have to get that context. That was after the Great Depression. And if anybody was going to try to publish a passive indexing book back in 1935, they would have been laughed and the book would have sold probably one copy. And that was to the author's mother. You got to understand that these investment strategies that come in vogue are a reflection of the consciousness of the time. And because we've had a a great bull market in bonds and stocks that began on the back of the inflationary in the Volcker era, you've got that set up for a great bull market that continued through the 90s and then... Every downturn was met with Fed policy because they were deflationary downturns, and that allowed a very specific approach to Fed policy, which then created rebounds or V-bottoms. And so everybody's been trained to buy the dip and everybody's been trained a certain way on investing. And you gotta understand that these things have long cycles and they do change. And so uh, just throwing that caveat out that what appears to be truth and what appears to be documented based on what appears to be long-term history can really just be a cycle or something that's just in fashion right now.
2: I just wanted to add one thing. So in the discussion active versus passive, so... I think in the FIRE community, we are running the risk that we are throwing out the baby with the bathwater because we have learned that if you want to do equity investing, you do it with passive index funds, right? And that's all fine. But there are many other ways you can be non-passive, right? You can change your safe withdrawal rate depending on market valuations, right? That sounds now very active because the passive solution is 4% rule. You use the 4% rule every day, or you could do some other non-passive allocation strategies. For example, I would always advocate that you want to have your mortgage paid off when you retire because a mortgage is basically a short bond, right? So, and you want to do the opposite. You want to have a little bit of a bond allocation early in retirement and you could phase that out and go more into equities later in retirement. But in order to hedge against sequence risk, you want to have some bond allocation early in retirement. And again, it sounds like you're doing something active, but it could be something that is proven to alleviate sequence of return risk. Or if you don't, like bonds because you're afraid for the rate hikes, then you just do it with cash or some other asset class. There are many different ways to be non-passive. And just because we have been trained that passive investment in the intra stock allocation could be futile. And we all want to be index fund investors. doesn't mean that we have to be passive everywhere else.
1: Play off that too. Most passive index investing isn't even passive. The S&P is not a passive index. It's an actively managed index that's really a proxy for growth. And so, you know, when you passively index into the S&P 500, you're really actively investing in a growth index.
4: Steve, as I hear this conversation, this passive versus active, I've noticed in our community, when you start moving away from certain keywords like passive, the community gets anxious. And in fact, yeah. there is a lashback. And I would say that probably Karsten has felt that when people look at his safe withdrawal rate series and kind of look at him and say, wow, that's complicated. And I know that Todd has also gotten that after his Choose FI interview. Why the backlash, Steve? Why are we so uncomfortable with this idea that we can't just set
3: it and forget it? I think that people want everything to be easy and it's not necessarily going to be. So one way that we look at this issue is, for example, the safe withdrawal rate, the 4% rule. I actually don't like the term rule because that implies that you always have to obey it. So for us, every single year, we essentially take a fresh look at our finances, a fresh look at the market and how things are going, and we effectively reevaluate whether our safe, quote unquote, withdrawal rate from the previous year is still going to work the next year. And that, like you said, really is where we go from passive to active. And I think you can be passive to some degree, especially when the market's good, but I would heavily encourage you not to necessarily rely on that. Instead, just take a yearly approach, make sure that every single year your financial situation still makes sense for you. And then if you do have to make changes, that might mean cutting back Or that might mean you could spend more now because you made a little bit more money in the previous year. I mean, that is certainly something that happens as well.
1: People want to believe that this stuff is simple. And at a core level, it is. There's certain things that are simple that you can grab, like 4% rule has some validity to it. It's not a throwaway. But as Karsten is well documented in his work, uh, there's a lot of nuance to it. There's a lot of angles on it. And I think that's the thing I was trying to bring into the conversation on that Choose Fi episode was the idea of nuance. You know, it's like people run around and they throw terms around, but they're not real clear what they're saying. So for example, bear market. Right? A nineteen eighty-seven crash isn't gonna hurt the FI community, right? Because if it hammers down and then it bounces back like that eighty seven crash did, that's not a problem for a passive portfolio. What's a problem is when you're drawing out of a portfolio after what I call a prolonged flat spot, which is often coincident with bear markets, they create effectively a flat spot where you go down, takes a few years to go down, takes a few years to recover, you bounce around for a while, sandpapers people to death, and then you know, 10, 15 years later, you look and you got no returns and you've been spending four percent a year and you're down 50 percent. So what I was trying to do is throw out some nuance in the conversation that we want things to be simple. So we hear these simple truths and we glom on them and say, hey, investing is this simple or spending rules are this simple or FI is this simple. And what happens is reality is nuanced. There's an inherent complexity. And you can look at kind of in a common sense test on this. You know, think about any aspect of your life that's important that is optimized through the passive approach, right? Whether that's relationships, career, you know, anything else, spirituality. I mean, you want to name it. There's absolutely nothing in your life that's optimized through a passive approach. Why would investing be any different?
4: Carl, your input on this. You know, you've mentioned before that the media is exactly opposite. The media goes through every reason why the safe withdrawal rate of 4% won't work. And it seems like our community just pushes back and says, no, of course, it always will work. I mean, are we missing some of this nuance, Carl?
0: Uh, I think the financial independence community tends to be more positive. So that's one part of it. But I think the other part of it is humans have negativity bias. And if you don't know what this is, it means humans gravitate towards a negative outcome. So if you're presented with 98 happy outcomes and two bad ones, you're probably going to focus on, on the two bad ones. So I think that hinders us. Uh, it doesn't help that bad news stories and negative things get clicks too. If Market Watch was always like, hey, everything's going to be great. Everything is happy, happy, joy, joy. People are going to click on those. People click on the stories that say why you're likely to fail in, in early retirement or how the 4% rule is going to doom you. And I think that's what makes it different.
5: So, I'm trying to process this through the lens of the 90% equity allocation through passive index funds. And I'll use the word passive in that context that I think you know what I mean by that. What is a listener of this supposed to take from this nuance? Because I like the word nuance, that it's not as simple as we sometimes make it out to be in the fire community. There are nuances, but what's the alternative?
1: Well, let's go ahead and take what Carl was saying, you know, 4% rule. I mean, nobody's done more work on it than Karsten, but if you look like Wade Fow documented very clearly, the 4% rule fails a hundred percent of the time on international data. And so If you look and say, well, we create this 4% rule based on U.S. data for the U.S. data that we have, and then the U.S. was the economic prom queen of the world over that time period. And so you go, well, that may not necessarily be a proper sampling of data. That's an example of a nuance, right? So you can say mathematically with truth what the number is based on U.S. data. And you can do different types of research with it, different samplings of the data. You can do different things. Then you go and you say, well, it didn't work on international data. Is that what I should be applying? You know What is the real safety factor? And then you start correlating it and you go, well, what are the correlations of the safe withdrawal rate to valuations at the beginning of the holding period? What are they to interest rates? What are they to inflation rates at the beginning of the period? And I'll let Carson take it from here, but those are examples of nuance. You take a simple rule and then you bring in the inherent complexity that underlies that rule. In other words, there's a simplistic superficial understanding, which is where most people stop. And then there's a deeper
2: understanding where you get to really understand the depth of it. And that's where I'll let Karsten take it. So one example of the difference between a shallow and a deeper understanding is talking about probabilities and failure probabilities, right? We've all seen the Trinity study, right? And then people look at the Trinity study and they say, oh, if I do 4% rule, I have a failure probability of X percent. And then some people say, oh, it's at 4%, uh, it's a 3 or 4% failure probability, Uh, So you understand probabilities, and that's a nice first step, but you should also understand conditional probabilities, right? And that's a deeper understanding. So conditional probabilities tell you, well, we are not randomly retiring any year between 1926 and 1966, right? We are retiring in the year 2018, and in 2018, we had relatively expensive equity valuations and relatively low bond interest rates. And if you condition on those circumstances that we have today, you could potentially have much higher failure probability. This is not a random experiment. Uh, as again, people think about the stock market and financial markets as random walks, and they're most, for the most part, they are. But again, so Todd mentioned that earlier. Uh, you also have to concede that valuations matter, and valuations matter not so much for the return uh, over tomorrow or the next week or month, but they definitely matter for returns over the next seven, 10, 15 years. So, in conditioning on the fact that we have expensive equity valuations, we have a probably much higher failure probability of the 4% rule. That's one thing. So this is the macro perspective, but there's also a micro perspective, right? So the reason why I don't like the 4% rule is exactly somebody said it before. We I don't like the word rule, right? There's a more offensive than the 4% is the word rule because we have to custom fit our uh, withdrawal strategies to what exactly are our personal situations, right? Are you 30 years old when you retire or are you already in your 40s or early 50s and you expect social security to start really soon and you have a corporate pension? You might even have a government pension you have government paid health benefits. So we all have to step back and we can't just all apply the same rule to everybody. We have to almost custom fit just like a suit or a pair of shoes to our personal needs. So I've done safe withdrawal rate case studies where most of the volunteers, they had higher than 4% safe withdrawal rates, even at relatively high equity valuations. And I I could uh, do the repeat of a 1929 episode and the repeat of the 1960s, 70s, 80s they would have survived that at a higher than 4% withdrawal rate. So, so again, it's, so there's the, both the macro and the micro picture. We can't simplify. So unfortunately, we have to complicate the safe withdrawal rate strategy here.
4: All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. You know what? So Steve, as I watch Karsten and Todd shake heads and smile at each other, so clearly their level of conversation is going to be different than the level of conversation that Paul and I have when they're not on the line. And it's not that we're not smart people, but there's certainly a level of understanding that goes past what a lot of us know. So what do you think we should be doing, those of us who don't have as deep a mathematical understanding of risk as these two do? And and there's certainly plenty in our community to do, but not all of us. How do we keep abroad of what's changing and what we need to do with ourselves?
3: Well, I think you've read my mind because I was thinking the exact same thing. Both Carson and Todd are way smarter than I will ever be. And there are a lot of financial terms being said here that go quite frankly over my head. And I don't think I am necessarily the odd one out within the larger financial community. They, like me, they just won't have a concept of everything that we're talking about here. So what do just the regular people who don't like their jobs, who want something different in life, who want to retire earlier, or achieve financial independence, whatever that happens to look like for them, what do people do? Where do they start? How can they approach this in a way that makes sense to them that doesn't go right over their heads as well? So as far as I'm concerned, really, it, it all comes down to your risk tolerance. That's it. I am a more risk-tolerant person. There's going to be risk-averse people who probably won't think along the same lines, but there's a couple different ways to look at risk. There's one, yes, you can retire early and run out of money. That's obviously the worst-case scenario. But then again, you can continue working in a full-time job that you do not like. And if something happens where you weren't able to enjoy your life after work, that to me is also a risk. So what my wife and I did when we, we ultimately decided to retire early is we didn't have all these details in mind necessarily. We used the Trinity study as a foundation, not a rule, absolutely not a rule, but as a foundation, just as a starting point to get us in the right ballpark. And now that we're in that ballpark, like I said before, every year we we just reevaluate and go from there almost as if we were retiring early again. Every single year we're doing this completely from scratch. And I think if people assume that things are going to change every year, then it's going to be a little bit easier for them to adjust to the changing times because they essentially have a leg up on what's happening and they're just not assuming that what happened in the past is going to continue happening in the future.
1: I think another thing that the FI community could do is to embrace alternative opinions from what I'll call the FI echo chamber, as opposed to be aggressive towards them. So it's no secret for everybody sitting here on this podcast that my Choose FI episode it has the inauspicious uh, recognition of having the most comments in Facebook group of any episode they've ever had, but they weren't positive. It was like you know, half negative, half positive. It was almost split, but it was bipolar. It was extreme to each side. People either said it was the best episode ever, or the worst episode ever, and what I got from that, I saw a lot of people come to me afterwards that knew me, or they commented on my post on my site about it that. I wasn't the only one that this was a common practice that there's like an underlying aggression or judgment within the community that I was not aware of until I went on that episode and I was quite taken by surprise by it that I don't think is healthy for the community. And I think what we can agree is that there is nuance to the discussion that is not commonly quoted. And I think when people come in with alternative viewpoints, People should try to learn from it. I mean, embrace these alternative viewpoints and just see what can be learned just because it's outside of what we'll call the doctrine, the religious doctrine that's been adopted here does not make it wrong. It just makes it another viewpoint that can be understood and benefited from.
4: Yeah, I wanted to make a statement, Todd. That Choose FI episode to me was groundbreaking. I really, really appreciated it. And it opened up my mind to the idea of risk management and risk mitigation in ways that I probably was doing on a minor level, but never was so thoughtful about it. And I too, that was one of the main reasons actually I wanted to do this panel is because I felt like there was backlash and I didn't understand why having an intelligent person come on and give persuasive arguments should ever make someone angry. I could see that make them uncomfortable with their own thoughts. I could see them disagree. And certainly this is, you know, a dialectic. We talk to each other. We hopefully bring the conversation to a higher level. You know, obviously we're not going to spend the whole podcast talking about that, but I think hearing everyone's voices are important and, and appreciated yours. I'm going to take this chance actually to pivot a touch and bring Carl in. You know, Todd has mentioned before, I think on that Choose FI episode, that his safe withdrawal rate actually probably ends up being greater than four because he can risk mitigate and risk manage in such a way that he might be able to withdraw more. And this makes me think a lot about the opposite side to being too risk averse is that you miss out on life. Do you think there are a lot of people out there who are working that extra year or are being too miserly or trying to get to a safe withdrawal rate of 2% and they're missing out on possible happiness?
0: Yeah, that does worry me. And it's something I thought a lot about before I quit because as everyone on this panel knows, if you go from a 4% withdrawal rate to a 3%, your chances of success greatly increase. But the flip side to that is for me to do that, I would have had to stay at my work for another couple of years. I think I figured it would take me two or three more years at my job with aggressive saving to do that. Had I done that, I would have missed some of my children's formative years. They are 12 and nine. So they're almost to the age, especially the older one, where she won't like me yet. And if I'd gone for that 3%, rate, I'd probably still be working right now. So I'm so thankful for the time I've had with them. And even if I fail, even if I run out of money, and it's easy to say this now, but I think it will have been worth it to go back to work to really spend that time with them and to enjoy my time while my body is still well too. I'd rather take this risk now and and quit while I still might run out of money. I don't think I will, but the time that I have with my kids now to help to do math with them, to run them over the summer, to travel, I wouldn't trade that for anything. So I I don't care about numbers when I think about life that way.
4: Carson, as you hear him say this, I know you've done some simulations where you've actually looked at what happens if you do quote unquote fail and have to go back to work. It's not always the easiest path. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's right. So, And again, this goes back to simple solutions versus nuanced analysis and careful analysis and robust and rigorous analysis. So, I mean, for example, you can always say that, well... Uh, there's a bear market and I look at how long can the bear market last. Uh, okay, three, four, five years. Let's do five years maximum and uh, I'll just do some side gigs. And what people don't realize is that your side hustle to make up the extra income or your reduced withdrawals and your, your cut in consumption might last a lot longer than the bear market, right? And the reason is that you have to recover in your portfolio, not just the lost years during the bear market. You also have to uh, recover inflation, right? That would have been a horrible task in the 1960s, 70s, 80s. And then you have to make up the withdrawals, right? So it's not like you're going to reduce your withdrawals to zero. And you maybe some people who are really tight with their finances, they might even be able to do that. But most people say, they say, well, I'm going to have maybe 30% of my consumption budget or 50% of my consumption budget. I'll just get a side gig and I'm going to cover that with my job and I'm going to do that just, uh, well, do I do that for three to five years? Well, you might have to do that a lot longer than that. And again, if I didn't I didn't realize for how long you have to do that. I did some simulations. If you had started in 1929 or in 1965 or 1966, we're, we're looking at not years, but decades of having to either work or cut your expenses until you reach again a normal level in your portfolio where you can uh, stop working or you can stop consuming less. And this is exactly during the years when I am going to enjoy my early retirement. And uh, what if I have to go back to work after three years and then have mm-hmm. to work for another 22 years? And uh, by that time, I'll be 70 years old. So that's something that doesn't work for me. But again, I totally agree that uh, there's also the risk of if you're too cautious with your initial withdrawal rate that you work too long. The funny thing is, I've done some case studies for people who approached me and said, well, I'm not really sure if I can retire already. And I looked at the numbers and I said, of course you can retire. A lot of people make the mistake on the opposite side, right? They work too long and they've already overaccumulated assets it's definitely something to keep in mind and again this is something that calls for a more customized and personalized analysis of your safe withdrawal analysis i mean if you are already 45 or 50 and you expect corporate pension or a government pension and social security uh, and your spouse is going to get a pension and social security and health benefits i'm mean, 4% is going to be wildly too low potentially for you because then after you just have to bridge these few years or maybe a decade or a decade and a half until you're eligible for pensions and social security. Yeah, I mean, it definitely 4% could be way too low. It's a funny thing Karsten
1: mentions because it's the number one issue that I've run into both with my coaching clients and course clients is that they're too conservative. They oversave. Surprisingly, right? I mean, they pad the numbers like by a factor of 2x often or 3x. It's really phenomenal of what they actually need and they end up spending a lot longer in life. And that's the single most common issue that I notice. So it's funny that you mentioned that, Karsten.
4: Yeah, Steve, sometimes kidding ourselves with the save withdrawal rate, because not only do people save too much... But at least almost every blogger I, I know out there has got some income coming from somewhere else, right? It's either coming from their blog or they their consulting. In fact, as I think of it now, maybe Mr. Taco is the only one I know who doesn't talk about some other income stream. So are we kidding ourselves? You know, I plan for a safe withdrawal rate of 4 or 3.5, but then I'll end up doing some side gig and my real safe withdrawal rate will actually be 2 or 1% or maybe 0
3: yeah, my wife did the math because she's the rocket scientist. I'm not, and we we earned forty three thousand dollars last year doing passion projects. That's the blog, that's our YouTube channel, things like that. So in my case, in our case, there's no way we are giving the Trinity study a, like a fair analysis because we're not. We're drawing four percent because, like you said, we don't have to. But one of the things that surprised me the most, I think, about early retirement is how many opportunities there are out there to make money if you want to. That doesn't mean you'll have to. Hopefully, you won't have to because if you do, then arguably, you're no longer retired. But if you do want to make that extra money, you know, before when we had a full-time job, we had the full-time job and we knew that we had the consistent income, the consistent cash flow and our brains just subconsciously ignored all those opportunities. But now that we no longer have that job, there's a lot, especially if you live in a first world country like the United States, there's a lot of opportunity out there to start getting involved in things, whether that's volunteering or doing something that actually earns money. And you probably won't have to live entirely on what you've accumulated during the accumulation phase of your life because you're probably, there are exceptions, of course, but you'll probably earn some money here or there after you quit your full-time job.
1: So I would argue that there really is no safe withdrawal rate over a 30 plus year time horizon. And I would be interested to hear what Carson has to say on that. If you define safe withdrawal rate as an amortization equation for your assets, it's inherently too unstable over such a long time period. The variables are too volatile. There's too many factors that you can't really safely withdraw over 30 years. And that's why I always advocate if you're young, you're really
2: looking at a cash flow equation, not actually an amortization equation. That's a really good point. So the initial, the Trinity study was written over a 30-year horizon and most early retirees look at something like a 50 or a 60-year horizon. And uh, so again, if, if you're not really careful, you say, well, these are both really long windows and uh, it's the same, but I mean, you will notice that it's not the same. So I did some calculations. So imagine you all you needed was you could guarantee a real return over the next 30 years, and you're fine with depleting assets. You need only a real return of something like a percent and a half. And that would deplete your assets over 30 years, but you could afford a 4% withdrawal rate. And the reason is that the capital depletion makes such a big difference, right? So you can go from a 1.5% real return to a 4% real withdrawal rate because the capital depletion makes such a big difference over 30 years. If you go over 50 years or 60 years, you need almost the entire 4% return in order to afford a 4% withdrawal rate in the beginning. Again, so if you are looking at these very, very long retirement windows, you almost have to make sure that over the first 20, 30 years, you don't deplete any money. And then after that, then you're looking at that 30-year Trinity study window, and then you can deplete your assets. But over the first 20 to 30 years, it would be a very scary experience if too much of your capital gets depleted very early on, because how are you going to make it another 50 years if you're already down to 80%, 70%, 60%? So that's the big difference between a 30-year and a 50-year horizon. And again, obviously, mathematically, I mean, you can do the calculation. What was the safe withdrawal rate if you had started retirement? in 1929, right before the Great Depression. And amazingly, it is 3.1%. So mathematically, there is a safe withdrawal rate. So you could have calculated it with all the information, but it would have been a scary of a hell of a ride, right? Imagine just a few years into retirement and your portfolio is down by 50%. Again, you didn't know that you're going to make it last with a 3.1% because you never know when that recovery starts. And the same episodes, you could have looked at the 1965 and 1966 uh, retirees. Again, the reason why, there's no quote-unquote really safe withdrawal rate is that you don't know how scary the episode is even in the episodes that would have eventually succeeded, right? I, I use this analogy, Trinity Airlines and uh, 3% of their flights crash. And uh, what makes you think that the other 97% are all smooth ride? And probably 47 of the other 97, uh, we're also going to all fear for our lives. Uh, so, this is not a 97% success rate. This is maybe only a 50% success rate. The other 50%, either you fail or you have a really scary ride where, again, you probably go back to work and uh, you see your portfolio depleted by so much. And again, so it goes back to Todd's point, in the beginning, uh, over a very long horizon, you have to target capital preservation and depletion isn't going to work over a 60-year horizon early on. Yeah, basically the way I teach it, Say I, I'm agreeing
1: with Carson, I'm just going to use different language. Uh, you can really only amortize over about the last 20 years of your time horizon safely much longer time horizon than that. The equation's terribly unstable. And then the other thing I want to do to bridge this conversation, because I know we were bringing in other income streams and things like that, is that one of the key concepts in risk management that I see differently from a lot of people, people talk about asset diversification, but I really think it's really key to talk about source of return diversification, which is very different. You get it from different assets, but you don't necessarily get it from asset diversification as it's commonly taught. People think of diversification as a risk management tool where they talk about, let's get different mutual funds, let's get different stocks, things like that. But then you're still carrying market risk. And the thing about conventional diversification as it's commonly practiced is it works the 95% of the time you don't need it and it fails miserably the 5% of the time you actually need it to work. Whereas when you diversify by some of these other things like Steve was talking about and Carl was talking about where they're bringing in other sources of income, those are different asset classes, right? So it's really three asset classes we work with in our financial independence, which is the business asset class or business entrepreneurship, real estate, directly owned real estate, not REITs in this case, because REIT is a paper asset. And then you've got paper assets, which is stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and ETFs, your broker will sell you. And each of those has different risk profiles as an asset. But then within each asset class, you can get different sources of return, which can greatly manage your risk exposure. So I'll leave it with that and let you guys run with that one.
4: Carl, I want to swing it over to you. I want to make sure we don't end this conversation without talking about other types of risk. It's really easy to talk about the safe withdrawal rate. It's really easy to talk about sequence of returns risk. But in this community, we face what I like to call black swan events, which you guys all understand are rare and unlikely events. But I also think there's something called white swan events. I usually define those as financial catastrophes that are common, that we're all at risk for. Uh, God forbid, that I channel Susie Orman here, but do we think enough about the white swans, the divorces, the healthcare crises? Are we protecting ourselves from those things?
1: Or just the periodic bear markets?
0: Yeah, I think so. I'm trying to think of specific examples. Most of us have health insurance. We're not foolish enough to live without insurance and things like that. I have enough money to cover me if my furnace goes out or the roof goes up, but I want to talk about something else kind of related to this. People always talk about all the bad stuff that can happen if you retire early. How about talking about the bad things that can happen if you don't retire early? And I like to use myself as an example. I had a very stressful job. I wrote software for a medical device. I had this, I like to tell people I had this black cloud over my head all the time because any day they could find a bug that, happened 15 years ago. I could be sued if I did it. If they could prove malicious intent or gross negligence, I could actually be in prison. So at the time I left my job, I weighed over 180 pounds. My blood pressure was slightly over 130 over 80, which is now hypertension. So since I left my job, I've lost almost 25 pounds. I'm no longer hypertensive. So my life is drastically improved because I don't have a job. So I'd like people to think about that instead of focusing on all the bad things that could happen because you leave your job early try to focus on the good things that might happen and Steve mentioned some of this too all the opportunities that come your way. My wife actually went back to work and in a roundabout way because I left my job and she got a job because of one of my side hustles which she loves. So all kinds of great things that you never would have planned for that you never would have had the mental bandwidth to consider because you're so busy with your normal life. these things come your way and it's pretty amazing. My life is nothing what I expected it would be in early retirement. We just bought a co-working space too, and that would not have happened if I would not have left early. So, Uh, To answer your original question, I think there are definitely risks that could affect us, but we're all smart about it. I think of my worst case scenarios, like if I had some massive health issue, like I needed a transplant, I happen to live in Boulder County in the United States of America, which is pretty well off place. So in a worst case scenario, if I needed some kind of transplant, I could probably go to another country to get that done for much cheaper here. I don't think those things will happen, but deep down, I have backup plans for my backup plans.
5: And we really didn't even talk about the idea of mini retirements or Todd touched on the alternate asset classes and building multiple streams of income. There are a lot of other points that we could pull on in this conversation, but I'd like to keep it honed in and round out this conversation with this idea of understanding risk and what are most of us missing? And I say us by the knuckle draggers like me out in the blogosphere who are the followers of the FIRE movement and who are following along, trying to make a life plan. What should we take away from this? I'll give each of you a chance to share your thoughts on what should we be doing that isn't necessarily as simple as is may have to be. What's the nuance that we should take away from this? Uh, Steve, I'll give that to you, please.
3: I think what a lot of us are missing is our ability to completely change our lives if we have to. One thing that I believe about early retirement is you don't have to have it exactly right. There's way over-saving, there's way under-saving, then there's that ballpark kind of in the middle. And that's where my wife and I are, and that is what I believe most people can be in even just a little bit flexible. As long as they're in that wiggle room, I think a lot of people have way more ability to make it work, then they probably give themselves credit for. And Todd said earlier, one of the problems that he sees is people are over-saving. And to me, that really hits deep because as Carl was saying before, that really affects your health, that affects your levels of stress. And quite frankly, I don't want to go through life doing something that I don't like. Even if on paper, it might be a little bit risky, even if it's a lot risky, life to me is not worth decades of of time spent doing something that I don't truly enjoy. That's it.
5: Yeah, I really like that because we often refer to this day of early retirement as being a one decision point and then the rest of our lives are planned out for us and there's no adjustment along the way. So I like that clarification. I'll give this over to Todd as well. Same question to you. What would you have somebody listening to this conversation take
1: away? Embrace the depth of knowledge. Don't just get stuck in the echo chamber of the FI community that's pretty much saying the same message over and over. Try to go outside of it and try to learn. Like, you know, when I talk about clients over saving, those are not FI community people. Those are people completely outside the community. So try to go outside and try to learn. That I mean, part of this game of life, in my opinion, is growth. Right. And you grow through learning. And so if you love this stuff enough to pursue FI, then maybe you love it enough to take your knowledge a step deeper and learn more and, and broaden it and go beyond just the basic stuff that's taught. The basic stuff that's taught is not wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong, but truth is nuanced. This is just an oversimplified truth. And the reality is it's more nuanced than that. And so embrace that and go for it. Enjoy the journey. I mean, it's a wonderful adventure. There's amazing stuff to learn. Carson and I are junkies on this stuff because it's really cool stuff, you know? I I mean, it's fun to learn and it's amazing stuff to think through. So anyway, that would be my own message is embrace the nuance of knowledge.
5: Yeah. I'll paraphrase here, but I think that what it captures your point well. Is it all the things that we know, half of them are wrong and it's the things that you think you know for certain that you have wrong or will get you?
1: Yeah. Mark Twain quote. Very good.
5: Karsten, how about you?
2: Yeah. So I think what people are missing again is uh, Scott calls it the nuanced view. I would call it the Make your retirement plan personalized, right Don't fall for this confirmation bias. You hear other people talking about, oh, yeah, four percent rule works, and uh, yeah, everybody else says it, uh, so it has to be true. So do your retirement because you're you're an individual, you have your personal. Constraints and personal uh, strengths and weaknesses, and your personal uh, financial parameters, your safe withdrawal analysis, your risk analysis has to be something that's personalized for you. And you you can talk uh, about the trinity study. You could even look at some of the things that I write. I mean, they're completely academic exercises, right? You look at some academic consumer that consumes forty-three thousand dollars in year one, and then adjusts everything with the CPI, and then uh, starts running this down until age ninety-five. Of course, nobody lives like that. Uh, but of course, in order to write uh, something that looks like an academic piece or even something on a blog, you have to make it more general as an academic exercise. But then uh, that's just the beginning of it. You have to do your own analysis. You have to be comfortable yourself about your retirement experience. And you can't just be flying blind because you read something. And this, again, this, Todd calls it the echo chamber. And uh, there's an echo chamber. Again, This is this is confirmation bias, right? You want something to be true. You want something to work. And then you cross your fingers and you hope it works. I've always been a a very, very careful, cautious, maybe sometimes a little bit too paranoid. If I hear somebody else say something on the internet or on TV and it has to do with numbers, my first instinct is to check the numbers and check the calculations and how does this apply to me. I don't believe it just firsthand and I don't believe it when I just hear it. I want to replicate it myself. Uh, Now, maybe not everybody wants to do that, but look for some help out there on the web where you can look some calculators to custom fit your safe withdrawal analysis and your risk analysis and not fall for some generalizations.
0: Carl, how about you? What are your thoughts? One of the things I see in this community that disturbs me most is, and disturb is the wrong word, but I think people focus on the worst case scenario and we heard it with all due respect to Big Earn, because he's, as Steve said, he's infinitely smarter than me, especially about all this stuff. But when he threw out some of the examples, he uses years like 1929 and 1965. And I don't even know what 1965 is, but I suspect that was uh, a very bad time to retire at the beginning of some recession. So what I would tell people, instead of focusing on those worst case scenarios, you could think about them, but your focus should really be on the most case scenario that's and with it most, because that's probably what's going to happen. You could be on Trinity Airlines and the flight could go down. But for example, I'm looking at one of Carson's tables and he said, he says here for 60 years for 100% stock allocation with a 4% withdrawal rate, I have an 85% chance of success. And that kind of surprised me. I didn't think it would be that high. So if I'm on Trinity Airlines and I'm in that 50% that fails, I'm going to go down, but I'm not going to die. I'm going to have to work at a, A big box store may be handing out shopping carts, and while I wouldn't like that, it's not quite as bad as uh, dying in a plane crash. So the most common response, what I tell people, especially people who aren't into this movement about my plans are, what I'm doing with my life, their first question is usually always the same, and it's, what if you run out of money? And my response to that is a question back to them, and it's, what if you run out of life? Because you are going to die, and what you do between now and then is largely controllable by you. So I don't think I'll run out of money, but I know I'm going to run out of life. And I want to maximize what I do between now and then for my happiness.
5: Heavy thoughts. And everybody I can tell wants to jump in so desperately, but we we are out of time. So we'll have to maybe come back and have that follow-up conversation with the same panel. Because, man, I I can just see it's bubbling out of you guys. You just want to answer all those questions that Carl just threw out there. So, Carl, uh, go ahead and let us know how we can find you and what's up next in your life.
0: You can find me on 1500days.com and what's up next in my life. My next goal will be expanding my co-working space and possibly buying a triplex property, maybe even tomorrow. So thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
5: Looking forward to it. Steve, I'll give you a chance to do the same thing. Where can we find you and what's brewing in your life?
3: You could find me at thinksaveretire.com or on Twitter at ThinkSaveRetire. And What's next for me, we are actually traveling out East all year. What's bringing us out there is we're speaking main stage at the RV Entrepreneur Summit. And one of the things I want to do this year is get out of my comfort zone. And speaking in front of that many people on the main stage is definitely getting me out of my comfort zone. Uh, so that's a big one for me. Well, that's a big one for both of us.
5: Carsten, how about you? What's up next for you and where can we find you?
2: Ah uh, yeah, you can find me at earlyretirementnow.com. Again, I blog about financial and mathematical aspects of safe withdrawal rates and safe withdrawal strategies—not exclusively, but most of it. My wife and I—we both retired last year, so we traveled for a very extended period, over seven, uh, just under seven months—and we just settled down in Washington State, close to the Oregon border. We're basically in a suburb of Portland, Oregon, but we live in Washington State. Uh, So, setting up our new household here, we just bought a house. Just the furniture (laughs) arrived as we were getting ready for the podcast here, and. uh, It turns out in April, we already get ready for our next trip. So we travel to Europe for uh, almost four months. And then we'll be back in August and our daughter goes to school. Uh, I'll get ready for FinCon. So that's my plan for the rest of the year.
5: Wonderful. Thanks for coming out. Todd, last words from you.
1: Where can we find you and what's up next in your life? So Todd Tresseter, Financialmanor.com. It's advanced investment strategy, advanced retirement planning, advanced wealth building. So I don't do any of the mundane personal finance stuff. It's just all kind of more advanced stuff, next level stuff. Just came from Carl's neck of the woods, had a fun ski trip in Colorado with a bunch of FinCon friends and uh, heading out to Japan at the end of the week for the next ski trip. So that'll be fun. When I get back, I'll continue. I'll publish my seventh book, So I'm going to have a book coming out on risk management. I guess that kind of matches this subject and more courses. So just keep building out the info products, try to get the education out there. All right. Well, this
4: has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, and my co-host, Paul Thompson, we wanted to thank Karsten, also known as Big Earn, Steve from Think, Save, Retire, Todd Tresseter, the financial mentor, and Carl Jensen, Mr. 1500.
5: Doc G and I are going live this Friday at 12 p.m. Noon Central to discuss this episode. To get on the live stream, join our Facebook group, the What's Up Next podcast, and look for notifications on when we go live. You have to be a member of the Facebook group to be a part of the live stream. We'll discuss this episode, give you some insight on what episodes we're currently working on, and a little sneak peek on the upcoming episode for next week. We look forward to reading your comments, engaging with you further, and seeing you live this Friday at noon on the What's Up Next podcast Facebook group. That's a wrap. I could I could see Todd several times. He'd pop up. He wanted he wanted
2: to jump on Carl.
0: No, no, <laughs> I'm just, just touching too. my back and I'm moving
2: around. Actually, just just as a <laughs> clever, I could. Actually, uh, nothing happened. Nothing happened in 1965. Damn it. Okay. <laughs> there was no recession, nothing. Basically, the market was just flat.
3: It was just Doc being rude. I could definitely see a follow-on to this, personally.
2: <laughs> yeah, see, sure. the, pro- the problem with having four guests on every show is you burn through all your contacts so quickly, so you might actually do <laughs> repeats anyways.
5: So. Yeah, we'll have to, for sure. <laughs> totally agree. And that could be a podcast right there, Doc.
1: Hope you didn't turn off the recording.
5: Yeah, oh, we, we we do
4: record to the end. We we yeah. because we we like to you know make fun of everyone by putting a bloopers reel at the end. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's just my charm, man. <laughs>
0: Hi, my name is Carl. I sometimes go by Mister fifteen hundred on my blog fifteen hundred days dot com. But please call me Carl. Mister fifteen hundred sounds like some kind of evil James Bond villain. <laughs>
5: That's exactly what I've always thought about you as a, as a, as a villain, for sure.
0: <laughs> Maybe
4: you're
5: right. <laughs> <laughs> Guilty as charged.
4: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Tech moves fast,
3: so keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more.